0: I know that children in our church family had a, a school music concert. And I'm going to assume that at least a, a few of the children along the way were complimented for either their appearance that night or their their performance in the concert. I, I wasn't there, but I've got to imagine that occurred at some point with at least some of the children because that's pretty standard fare that, that children receive those compliments after a concert. Yet, yet I want us to think a little bit about Some of the things that led up to that concert. I would imagine that all of the children wore clothing that had been purchased by their parents. I expect that that clothing was washed and ironed, most likely by mom, who made sure that it was ready for Friday night. Mom probably spent time fixing the hair of her daughter, too, so that it would look just beautiful for the concert. Then both mom and dad ensured that the children were piled into the car in time to drive in the parents' car to the school so that they could be part of that concert. If the child played a musical instrument, again, mom and dad provided. I'm sure if there's musical lessons that went along with it, mom and dad were pay- have been paying for those as well. Clearly, mom and dad played a significant role in Providing all the things that were necessary for the child to participate in the concert. Yes, the child was in the concert. The child received the compliments for that concert. And yet, mom and dad provided what was necessary for the child. It would seem right that mom and dad should receive thanks for providing everything that was necessary for that concert, wouldn't it? It would seem that would be proper. Now, I'm not trying to put any guilt on children because most likely children never thought about doing that. But, but I think we can understand it's proper that, that mom and dad would get some recognition for that provision. We're still early in the letter of Colossians this morning, but Paul is going to show us that it's just as proper for us to recognize and thank God for what he has provided for us through the gospel-saving work in our lives as it would be for the children to thank their parents. In fact, I would say it's even more so because our salvation is so much more significant than providing things for a concert. Yes, our salvation is ours. We enjoy our salvation. But God provided many of the things for our salvation to occur. The first thing we encountered as we started this letter a couple weeks back was that Paul was describing his thankfulness for the Colossian believers. He had heard about their faith and he assured them that he regularly praised God for them. He praised God because of the gospel's transformation that's occurring in their lives because of the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. Next, we we saw that because of their faith in Christ, the the Colossians are to live lives that that magnify him. And to do so, they need to think right and they need to act right. They need to think and act in ways that are consistent with their faith in Christ, giving a, a gospel display. The parallels have been obvious so far as we've looked at this letter. If we too believe in the gospel message, if we have faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, then, then we too are experiencing gospel transformation. That transformation should show itself in the way we think, in the way we act, so that, that we too have gospel display in our lives. Now you may recall last week that I mentioned that today we'll continue a, a long sentence that Paul penned in the original language. Paul is well known for writing these really long sentences that that run on and on with with many, many nested clauses. It's hard to replicate the the flow of Paul's thoughts in English without breaking these clauses into separate sentences. English doesn't work the way Greek did, so we need to break these up. And Our English translations generally place a a period after verse 12 and, and begin a new sentence in verse 13. I'm following that by dividing my sermons here at that point, but we need to understand that break is somewhat artificial. If you have your Bibles open to Colossians 1, you can see that the final thing that that Paul mentioned in the text we looked at last week, and the final thing he mentioned there in verse 12, was that we are to give thanks to God, the Father, who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, as I expressed it last week, we are to be habitually thankful. We should thank God habitually because through the faith in in the gospel message of what Christ himself has done upon the cross, we now have an eternal inheritance. Nothing in this life can change that. That's ours. And that generates thanks. Thanks. Well, this morning, the, the idea of giving thanks, it continues to drive our verses. And that's why I want us to understand, even though we have what looks like a new thought, it's really not. that The idea of driving uh, of thanksgiving still drives into our verses. When God qualified us for this eternal inheritance, a number of things happened at the same time. Simultaneously with that, that event uh, that qualified us for our eternal inheritance, there were a number of other occurrences at, at the moment We accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. At the moment the gospel transformation began, at the moment we experienced salvation through faith, several things happened simultaneously. This was the moment that we were saved. This event moment, this this time when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that is the moment of our salvation. We received salvation. We placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We experienced that. It was an exciting moment for us. Yet, very much like the children who participated in the concert Sunday or Friday evening, we need to understand that God provided several things at that moment that made our salvation possible. We had the experience, but God provided. And because God is ultimately the provider of these things, it's proper that we thank him that we thank him because of what he provided in that moment. That really is the, the main idea that flows into our verses this morning. The, the lesson that we need to learn. Because of the gospel provision, we thank God for all that he provided us through the gospel's power. We thank God for all that he provided Through the gospel's power. God provided. We experience God provided. We thank God for all that he provided us through the gospel's power. Look at verse 13. We're picking up this thought here in verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're only going to look at those two short verses here this morning. We thank God for all that he provided us through the gospel's power. In these two short little verses, Paul lists three things that that God did at our salvation. Three things that were provided that we should thank God for, for doing. Number one, we thank God for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness. Rescuing us from the dominion of darkness explicitly here in the first half of verse 13, Paul says, this is something God did for us. He, the he is the father of verse 12. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. Paul doesn't specifically state that this rescue occurred at the moment of salvation. That's not in the verse, but the idea that he's still dealing with that moment it flows from what he's been talking about in the The previous verse, that qualifying event, it's linked together here. He's talking about the moment of salvation, God rescued us. Paul's looking at our salvation as a whole. He's looking at this event as a whole thing that occurred. And and there's several different aspects of that event that, that we can think about now in retrospect. As we think back to that event and we consider it from all that the Bible says in retrospect, we can examine different aspects of it. Rescuing us from dominion of darkness, that's one of those aspects that occurred at that moment. What I want us to see here is that Paul is not focusing on how God performed the rescue. Oftentimes, that the how of a rescue is performed, that's what we focus on. The excitement to us comes in understanding the how something was done. We want to hear the details about how the rescue happened. For example, a couple of months ago, Grace and I watched a documentary on on the children's soccer team that was rescued from flooded caves in Thailand back in 2018. You you may recall that story. It made international news for several weeks. A team of boys and their coach, they'd gone into... To these set of caves. They'd gone exploring and they'd gone deep in and suddenly there were rains that came and, and the caves flooded out and, and they kept fleeing further back trying to find a way to get out, but they couldn't. It, it was thought that the boys had perished, but they were really just cut off from long sections of totally submerged tunnels. After uh, several days, some British divers went into the caves trying to find the boys, figuring that this was just a recovery operation. And they were stunned to find the boys almost two miles back into the cave system, still alive. And the documentary detailed how the boys were rescued. There was no way that untrained divers could make it through these flooded tunnels and let along boys who had no diving training at all. So the documentary showed how eventually the boys were anesthetized and then they were brought out by professional divers one by one in an unconscious state through all this great underground water submerged tunnels over the course of several days. It's an amazing story and the focus in the documentary was on how it was accomplished, how they managed to anesthetize and bring these boys out. Well, that's not how Paul is focusing here. He's not focusing on the how of our rescue. The, the how of our salvation is the crosswork of Christ. Paul focuses on that in many places. Here in verse 13, however, Paul's focus is on what God delivered us from, what we were rescued from. The, the term rescue. That, that indicates the seriousness of our situation. There was nothing we could do. We were like those boys, miles back in, in the tunnels with no hope when we were rescued. We were helpless. We needed an intervention. We needed rescue, but the focus is not on the how, it's on the where we were located. For the boys, it would be that place that would be totally dark, miles back in the cave system where they were found. For several days, the boys and their coach had been in the cave where it was dark. I've taken several cave tours in my life and every time I take a cave tour, at some point in that tour, the guide stops us and gathers us all together and what do they do? They turn off the lights. And it is dark. Pitch, pitch black, right? You cannot see a thing, there's no light at all. Well, that would have been... The focus of where these boys were, if we were focusing on that aspect in the documentary, there's no light at all, there's nothing you can't see, that's darkness. And frankly, before God rescued us, that's the way the situation we were in is described. Paul uses the phrase, domain of darkness, as we have it translated New American Standard there, to describe where we were located Some translations, if you have a King James Version, for example, translates as power of darkness. I think the best translation is the English word dominion, as I have on the screen. The new international version, the NIV version, uses that translation. I think dominion best reproduces the dual idea that the original word had. There's a, a place and a power that's contained in the idea. It's got both those things. The Greek word has both those. This wasn't simply a place. It was a place that was governed by an active authority, an active power. Yes, the place is best described as darkness. But there's a governing power that made it a dominion of darkness, a ruler over that darkness that we needed rescue from, as well as the place. And this is where we were born. This is where we were residing before God acted. Our natural habitat, you know, you, you go and you see, watch documentaries of animals and they're always talking about in their natural habitat. Well, our natural habitat was a dominion of darkness. It's hard to wrap our minds around That kind of a dominion. A dominion that's best described as darkness. Just as as light always describes, though, the area of God's direct control, like it did in verse 12 there, as we talk about the saints of light, the area that God directly controls. In the New Testament, darkness, the the exact opposite of light, darkness always describes the area of God's enemy's control. Where Satan is the ruling agent. That The phrase is, Often that we have here is often used to reflect evil's foreboding presence in the world. We see the phrase, for example, in Luke chapter 22: 53. And if you looked at Luke 22:53, that's the record of, of Jesus' arrest when he's in the, the garden there. And G, right as Judas betrays him, and all the, the soldiers come, Jesus says, "While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay on hands your hands on me." But this hour and, here's our phrase, the power of darkness are yours. That word power is the same word that we have translated as domain here in our verse or, as I said, dominion. This is the dominion of darkness. Luke's recording this betrayal and there is an evil that, that is controlling what's happening as well as the darkness. Jesus acknowledges that evil's presence there is existing under God's permissive sovereignty. And that's our natural habitat. There's a dominion of evil that God allows to exist. And that's where we grew up. That's where we were born. It's a spiritual dominion over which God has granted Satan control. And that's where we were naturally comfortable. It is this dominion of darkness in which we were providing before our salvation. But it's also this dominion of darkness, this power and influence place, this dominion of darkness, that is where God victoriously rescued us. Now, I don't presume to understand all the reasons that that God allows evil to exist in the world. But I do know, ultimately, God has told us everything exists for his glory. And we can see from this verse that one of the reasons for the existence of evil is to show the power of our God in rescuing us. Rescuing us from its dominion. God allows evil to exist so he can rescue us just like he rescued the Colossians. Salvation through faith in Christ's death and his resurrection show the power of God. That's the means, our, our faith in Christ and his finished work. That, that's the means of our rescue. But God provided the rescue. God provided it. Have you accepted God's rescue? If so, you will naturally thank God for it. We thank God for all that he provided through the gospel's power. First, God provided our rescue. Our rescue from the dominion of darkness. We thank God for rescuing us from this dominion. Having placed that idea in our mind, putting thanks in our minds for God's rescue, Paul continues with the second item. We, we thank God, secondly, for transferring us into the kingdom of Christ. Into the kingdom of Christ. That, that's the second part of this accomplished rescue. The second provision that that God has has given that that causes joyous response from us. God transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul, he's still looking at our salvation as a whole. He looked at from one side, there's the rescue. We're, we're, We're rescued from the dominion of darkness. But he says, but there's another aspect we can look at. We were transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's where we now reside, in a new realm. That that verb that's translated as, as transferred, that, that's an interesting term. It, it shows up in military records in, in the, the Greek language where there's military reco- records. It, it shows, uh, it's used for a wholesale transportation of, of a group of people from one territory to another. It, it wasn't uncommon practice at all in ancient times if if someone came in and conquered, a, a king would come and conquer a land, that, that the king would take the entire population of, of the conquered land and transfer them somewhere else. The, the theory was that a conquered people would be less likely to, to rise up in rebellion and, and fight for independence if they were living in land that, that was not their native home. It's kind of like, I'm, I'm still not sure... I feel like a Michigan gander, even though the reality is I've lived more of my years here in Michigan than I lived in my home state of North Dakota. But I still feel like I'm a North Codan. Well, I've been transferred to Michigan. Think about what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament when the Syrians defeated them, or the southern kingdom of Judah when the Babylonians defeated them. We, we say they were taken into exile, But exile really is a transferring of people. They were taken out of their land. The population was removed. They were taken wholeheartedly. All the people were gathered up and moved, if they were still alive, moved to another place. They were transferred from the promised land to other locations. Well, here in verse 13, Paul uses a word that would immediately create that image in the reader's minds. God, after he rescued us from our native environment, after he performed that amazing rescue, he transferred us, transported us completely to a new territory. Again, there's both a change of location and authority. We were transferred to a new place with a new governing head. The the place that God transferred us, it's referred to here as the kingdom Of God's beloved Son. Well, kingdom is is parallel domain. So again, there's this idea of location and authority, that dual idea has to to reside there. We now reside in a place that is best described as the, the place of God's beloved Son, where where he is, where Jesus Christ resides, but at the same time is a place that's governed by God's beloved Son. Governed by Jesus Christ. A new place and new governing authority. That's what we receive from God. That dual reality that we now reside in a new place under a new governing authority, that is the reality of a Christian. Through God's work at the moment of our salvation, we're, we're transferred to Christ's kingdom. And because Christ's kingdom is not at, on earth at this time, sometimes we get a little confused by the abstractness, maybe, of the idea that that we now reside somewhere else. After all, Christ's kingdom is not here on earth, but we are. One way we can think of it is that our citizenship has already moved. We're now citizens of a new place, a new kingdom. We're no longer citizens of the dominion in which we were born. We're now citizens of Christ's kingdom. Our citizenship is transferred. We, we're citizens of his kingdom and we, we have the rights to the full benefits of our citizenship knowing that we will enjoy those rights when his kingdom is established here on earth. Yet looking at it like that, that's only partial of, of the idea that we should see here. Remember there's both a place and authority associated with both the dominion and the Kingdom. If you think of, we'll enjoy the benefit of our new kingdom when Christ sets up here, that's the place idea, that we'll be in that place. But we're already under the authority of our new king. We're citizens of his kingship. He is king. We're under the authority of our new king. Even though we wait for the full manifestation of the place aspect of the kingdom, the the authority aspect is already there. Our transfer was completed the moment of our salvation. Look at transferred, past tense. It happened. The moment we were saved, we were rescued and transferred. We have a new king. We do not answer to the ruler of darkness. We answer now to our king, Jesus. Our goal is to serve our king. Does your life reflect that? When you examine your life, does your life reflect that you're serving your king? That you're answering to him? Or does your life look like there's still influence from the old ruler? Those works that went along with the dominion of darkness. What does your life look like? Is your allegiance to your king obvious? To everyone who knows you. Your allegiance is obvious this morning. You're sitting in church. You're singing praises to your king. This morning is obvious. We know it. Does everyone who know you knows that your allegiance is to a new king? How about the people that see you furthest from this place? You know, those people who live in the house with you? Do they see your allegiance to Christ at all times? Or do those who live with you see a lot of those deeds of darkness still popping up? How about the people you work with? Before we move off the second point, I want you to notice one final thing in the end of verse 13. Look at the qualifier that Paul gives to Christ's kingdom. He describes the kingdom as the kingdom of God's beloved Son there really is no better way to describe Jesus Christ than as God's beloved son. Paul's focus ha- has not been on the means of how we were rescued, but, but it does begin to, to come in a little bit. The, the means are never too far from Paul's mind. Jesus Christ is how we were delivered. It's how we were rescued. It's how we were transferred. It's how we were saved. Jesus Christ's work on the cross. It's through Jesus that our rescue is accomplished. It is through Jesus that our transfer is accomplished. Jesus is God's beloved son. He was God's beloved son before he accomplished his cross work. Yet, we also can say that Jesus is uniquely God's beloved son because he accomplished his cross work. Jesus did the impossible. He gave himself for us to accomplish this mission, this rescue, this transference. God initiated and ensured our salvation by by putting forth this mighty rescue mission. Jesus accomplished it. God the Father, God the Son, they they worked in perfect harmony to, to provide the salvation that we enjoy. This amazing feat should move us to thank God For what he provided through his son. We thank God for all that he's provided through the gospel's power. God provided our transference into the kingdom of Christ. We thank God for transferring us into the kingdom of Christ. Now, having brought up the name of Christ, Paul flows right into a third item in verse 14. Again, these are Paul's thoughts. They kind of flow one to the other. Just keep building. We're thanking God and we thought of Christ. Well, let's flow into thinking about Christ a little bit more. Third item, we thank God for Christ emancipating us from sin's bondage. We thank God for Christ emancipating us from sin's bondage. Here at last... Paul's attention does move slightly to the means of, of our rescue and our transference because Christ is now back in mind. For, for these things to happen, for a rescue and a transfer to, to be accomplished, Christ had to break the hold that the dominion of darkness had on us. Christ had to overcome that power that was pinning us in our original domain. Rescuing us required freeing us. And Paul now is dealing with that freeing aspect. What did Christ do to free us? He's dealing with that when he says that it is God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, that is in him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What Christ did was to redeem us. That's how he broke the hold that sin had upon us, how we were pinned into that, that, domain, that dominion of darkness. He rescued us by redemption. And then Paul defines redemption here as the forgiveness of sins. These should be familiar concepts really to all of us. But, but let's dwell on them for just a, a few minutes here this morning. After all, this really is the heart of our salvation Our redemption is the heart of our salvation. It should excite us. It should fill our hearts with joy. It should cause praise to to flow over our lips time and time again. We are redeemed people. But what does that mean? Much like the word that Paul used when he said we were transferred, he, he uses a word that will immediately create a picture in the minds of the original readers. Transferred. Picture that military movement of populace. Well, here he uses a word, redemption. And this word would have evoked the imagination of the people's minds. It would have immediately brought a picture of the emancipation of a slave. In the Roman worlds, slaves had the right to to gain their freedom. As you may know from other times when we've discussed Roman slavery, a Roman slave was considered the property of his or her owner, A slave was property, and as property, the slave did not have any legal rights whatsoever. But slaves did have emancipation prices. As property, the the slave did not have rights as a slave, but they had the right to emancipation. An amount was set that if paid, freed the slave and granted that person legal rights as a free man or woman within the, the Roman courts. Just last night I was watching a documentary on Pompeii and and this idea came up in that documentary that a slave was not a lifelong affair in the Roman Empire. A slave could be emancipated and once they were emancipated they were a free person and had all the legal rights and could even rise to the status of a prominent citizen in, in the city. Now I would assume because of that process that that was available there, every slave likely knew what his or her redemption price was. How much money will it cost to buy freedom? Either the slave could save the money and and pay the amount, or a benefactor could come along and, and pay it on the slave's behalf. That amount was set. And once that occurred, when that payment was made, the person was permanently released from slavery. They were released by the payment of the redemption price. Paul uses the word that describes this process when he says, we have redemption. We have emancipation. A word that evokes this idea. And he says that Christ is our redemption. And just in case we don't know what our price was, I said a slave, I'm sure, knew how much it would cost to buy their freedom. But just in case we don't know what our redemption price was, Paul clarifies it. Our redemption price was the forgiveness of sins. The price of our emancipation from our slavery required the satisfaction of God's offended righteousness. That's what means forgiveness of sins. Our sin offended a holy God. God's offense needed satisfaction. That's the price. Our slavery was the slavery of sin, and our sin offended God. And that offense required a full payment for our emancipation, for our redemption. We constantly need the Bible to recalibrate our our minds regarding the offensiveness of sin. We need the Bible to to correct our thinking about sin. Because we're born sinners and because we live our lives sinning from our earliest memories till now, sin is just part of who we are. And for that reason, we tend to minimize sin in our minds. We think, sure, there are some really bad sins. But most sins are not that big of a deal because everyone does them. We, we then pride ourselves on not doing the, the big things, you know. We don't go around robbing banks. We don't commit adultery. We don't drive filled with road rage, cutting people off and shooting at their cars. We're good people. Or whatever it is. It seems like whatever the big sin is that we pride ourselves on not doing is something we've never been tempted to do. We can set all that over there, but we hardly give a thought to the endless stream of what one author calls respectable sins. Things like gossip, white lies, grumbling, thanklessness, judgmentalism. Those little things. You know, there is a reason that slander and disobedience to parents is listed right next to murder and forgiveness in Romans 1, 29 and 30 as Paul's listing sins. We would readily agree that, that murderers and haters of God, they, they are people that do not deserve the kingdom of God, but slanderers? Those disobedient to parents, they don't deserve the kingdom of God? They don't deserve forgiveness? We need the Bible to recalibrate our thinking We need to understand that all sin offends our holy God. Our thanklessness offends our holy God. Our judgmentalism, our grumbling, our white lies, our gossip offends a holy God just as much as murder offends a holy God. And the only thing that can purchase the forgiveness of our sin is a blood payment. Life is required. Sinful lives, our own, can pay for our sins through, the Bible tells us, an eternity in hell. Or a sinless substitute can be offered in our place. Friends, we read this little verse, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, we read that quick But do we recognize that in those short little phrases, Paul's reminding us our redemption did not come cheaply. Our emancipation was expensive. It was not easy. It required the beloved Son of God to die in our place. Jesus Christ gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. Without his sacrifice, there is no freedom. Without his sacrifice, there is no emancipation. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, God made him to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That glorious exchange, substitution of our sin for his righteousness. Why? Because God so loved the world, they gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Our faith. We look at, yes, salvation requires our faith. We must believe that Jesus did this for us. All the heavy lifting, all the work was provided by God. And he did it at the expense of his own son. God, through his son, provided for our emancipation from sin's bondage. Do you wake up every morning marveling over this truth? Do you go to bed every night amazed that that God would do this for you? After all, by the time you go to bed each night, you've added to that sin list. Are you amazed that God redeemed you? That those sins that you just committed in this past 24-hour time block are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you thank God for your redemption in Christ? We thank God for all that he provided us through the gospel's power. God provided for Christ's emancipation of us. We thank God for Christ emancipating us from sin's bondage. We thank God for all that he provided us through the gospel's power. That is our lesson this morning. If I had to guess, as I said earlier, I would guess that most of the children Friday night did not thank their parents for providing everything that was required for them to participate in the concert Friday night. Children assume that their parents will do things like provide clean clothing and and they may even grumble when their parents provide musical lessons. Children typically fail to, to recognize that they should thank, uh, thank their parents for what's provided. Yet those same children likely enjoyed all the compliments that came their way as a part of the concert. When it comes to salvation, are we like children? Are we like children in that we fail to thank God for what He has provided? I certainly hope not. We enjoy our salvation and we ought to celebrate our salvation, but do we understand God provided all these things that accomplished our salvation? Paul's lifted three things this morning that God provided as part of what we call salvation. That moment in time when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we realize that we cannot save ourselves, Christ alone is the only way that we can have our salvation, Offenses against God forgiven. At that moment, we experienced salvation. But do we thank God that He provided so much more at that moment? One, He rescued us. Do we thank God for rescuing us from the dominion of darkness? Number two, He transferred us. We thank God for transferring us into the kingdom of Christ. And three, He emancipated us, He paid the blood price. We thank God for Christ emancipating us from sin's bondage. Last week, we were challenged to be habitually thankful people. This week, the challenge has been magnified as Paul has brought the focus on to these three aspects of our salvation. Gospel provisions that that God accomplished. So my question to you this week is, will you meet the challenge of being habitually thankful by living a joy-filled, thank-filled life because God provided these things. We thank God for all that he provided us through the gospel's power. Let's pray. Father, as we consider our salvation, as we consider what you provided at that moment in time for most of us, we are stunned into an odd filled silence. Our hearts overflow with joy because we are amazed at the great love of our God. Father, I pray that this morning your spirit would move within each of us so that our our love for you would grow as we see anew what we have in our salvation. Father, I do pray if there is one here listening today that does not know Christ as Savior, that has not experienced this moment in time where the salvation transaction has occurred because the person has never placed faith in Jesus alone for salvation. May today be that day. May it be the day of emancipation. And Father, may we all look back on that day that have experienced it. Joyfully thanking you for what we've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.